Chapter 5 Alongside FBI agent Jim Ponder, Atlanta Police Lieutenant Jack Perry led Mary Shotwell Little's missing and possible homicide investigation. It was the one case that stuck with him, the one case he was never able to solve before he died. Jack was the sort of the lead homicide detective and the guy who went to North Carolina to interview the people. Uh, kind of a crusty old cop by this time. As I said, I thought he was much older because he was he was old and dying. He was not old, but he was sick and dying. And so he looked old, but uh, you know, I, he must have been, when he, wor- when he worked on the case, he must have been just his late 30s. Mm-hmm. I was thinking he's about 80. He worked on it when he was around 50 or something, but he was only he was younger than I am now when he died, I think. But he, he was had serious health problems and died just a couple weeks after uh, we talked to him last. Retired journalist Jardine Dyer gave me a cardboard box full of tapes from his research while working on his story in 1995. It's just a puzzle. There's a lot of questions and not enough answers. Inside that box was that taped conversation with Jack Perry. You always hope more than one person commits a crime. If there's any more than one, your chances is much greater of catching them. So one of them will talk. One of them will talk somewhere. I always hope and pray. I got on a murder scene if there was a body laying there. I said, well, I hope three or four duty. From 11alive.com, Tegna Media, and the Gone Cold series, I'm Jessica Knoll. This is Five Roses. The FBI lists Mary's husband, Roy Little Jr., in the case file as unsub with notes about whether or not he was a victim of extortion. An unsub is short for unknown subject in reference to a suspect. APD Superintendent Clinton Chafin and Lieutenant Jack Perry make note in the police file that Roy indicated no real emotional disturbance following his wife's disappearance. As a result, in their investigation, they zero in on what Jack calls his gut feeling. You just keep thinking, you know, who could have did it? And, well, my husband. Well, he could have had it done. But he'd have had to have a stop because they didn't nobody know she was going to be there. She didn't know until late in that afternoon that they was going to have done it. In 1965, the FBI and the APD interview the 24-year-old husband, who's out of town at the time his wife vanishes. He tells detectives that Mary didn't like to stay out alone at night, and she always parked under lights and locked her car doors. He tells them that he is very much in love with Mary and is quite positive she was in love with him, that she did not voluntarily accompany anyone to leave. But Jack isn't buying it. I tried my best to put it on Roy Little. I, I felt, after we found out he was out, I knew he didn't do it, but he could have had it done. But the thing is that he did uh, led me to believe that maybe he was involved some way, the things he said. These tapes are old. Years of dust and deterioration have set in. But it's worth listening beyond the buzz because Jack Perry's gut feeling became a focus of the investigation. Uh, he used to come in my office and would listen to investigators discussing other cases other than Mary's, like a rape case happened one night. Uh, anyway, he would come in that night and usually bring some of his friends with him, young, young people. 
and he'd come in, and the first thing he'd do is come over to him, and he'd say, did you get anything on that rape case last night? He didn't ask me, have you heard anything about my wife? He's wanting to know about other cases. Four days after Mary disappears, Roy issues a check to the Atlanta Falcons for two season tickets for the 1966 football season. The FBI notes this as, quote, seems unusual. And on one occasion, he came in there, sat down in my office, we were just in there alone, and he asked me, he said, what do you think of the perfect crime? I said, there's no such animal. He said, if I do something and you don't catch me, that's perfect crime. I said, no, it's not a perfect crime. You did something wrong. You made a mistake. And I made a bigger mistake by not catching you. But there's no such thing as a perfect crime. Well, I figured maybe, you know, he's just going to keep talking and, you know, he'll tell me something I'd like to hear. I tried several times to get him to take a polygraph. The FBI had set up for him on two or three occasions, but I confronted him in front of his friends when I asked him to take it. I didn't want him to be able to say, you know, uh, no, I don't take it. I wanted him to say, yes, you take it, and have the people there present. But he never did take that polygraph. Uh, something always come up, and they had it set up, I know, three times, but he would not take the polygraph. His actions, there was nothing that I could put my finger on. I used gut feelings, and my gut feelings had always paid off. That boy wasn't right for some but uh, right afterwards, he, he divorced. He went to Las Vegas and got a divorce. It wasn't too long after the death, and he remarried. Married a school teacher from Tennessee. Jardine says Lieutenant Perry and the other investigators came up empty. Even if they didn't like Roy, and even if Roy seemed to rub a lot of people the wrong way. And the cops just, you know, cops found that very cold when the guy's by his wife's missing. That he's like, he's telling them about, you know, I've calculated the gas that was burned. And and he wanted his car back, which is, uh, you know, because, he, because it had been his car. He brought the car into the marriage. He didn't have a car before. Uh, so, uh, you know, I mean, it's, but he was, he's, he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And the worse it got, the more he would just be openly contemptuous of them. Mm-hmm. You know, Jack said, you know, he, he told Perry, he said, that, you know, he told me you know, how to commit the perfect crime, committed in Atlanta. That way the cops will watch it every time. And, it, you know, and Jeffrey, you know, we didn't like that. That was him coming to the station saying stuff like that to us. And, he's, you know, he was, well, it was. He was throwing it back at them. It was very easy to dislike him in retrospect, especially. And I think he was not not the most cuddly guy in the world, but it, it, he was he was caught in a bad situation. And they said he was, you know, the police said he just seemed stoic. And he told somebody, he said, you know, I don't, maybe this thing is, maybe it's better this happened now. If it's happened 10 years from now, I don't know if I could have taken it. A strange thing to say, but he had that sad life. You know, his, his sister was mentally disabled. Apparently alcoholism and certain kinds of mental illness were rife in his family. I think he had come up pretty well from his origins. And it makes me sound like I'm from... <laughs> <laughs> the house of Windsor, but I think he had done pretty well. But he was, he, you know, he kind of brooded about, you know, is it all gonna go or not? And then he said, well, you know, maybe it's better it, this happened now than it didn't happen ten years from now, because uh, I don't know if I could have taken it. So he was, they, he would, they said if he drank, but he didn't like to drink too much because his, it was alcoholism in his family. But if he drank, he would be, be much more easygoing. But he tried to kind of. So with Mary, apparently they they. They could they click with each other. It didn't bother him that she was a sloppy housekeeper. He was trying to change her, but it didn't bother him. He didn't look down on her for that. 
and you know they had it was you know, things were I think she was I guess the mid 60s the sexual revolution and she you know she had one of her ex-boyfriends and yeah I was I was intimate with her and but she apparently had told this to other women at the bank too so it was not you know back then some women would not it's not something that people just blind, you know, mm-hmm. blindly talked about or at least they didn't talk about it to me you know I was, I was I was 15 at that time and I didn't hear older women saying well you know I was it was you know things were a little more straight laced but she apparently was not she made no secret of it that she had been intimate with the other guy before she broke up with him and got with Roy but it didn't you know she was not uh, I mean I think I think she wanted to be a great place respectable married woman and I'm sure she was but she wasn't she wasn't like a 19 I don't know 1940s woman who would think she was a fallen woman if she'd slept with a guy it wasn't that way it was mid 60s and all that swinging 60s and you know people were so if if things were attitudes were changing not not totally but I think she was comfortable with her her life and her choice and and he said you know one of the other quotes I've I've been reviewing some of the last few days and he said you know he told his mother I just thought we were perfectly compatible she's the only person I ever knew that I could talk about anything with and you think that is you know that 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 although you know that 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 is somebody who's really missing a person we never of course never got a chance to talk to his second wife but she uh some people who knew her sort of told us secondhand that she said, well, I'm, you know, because she was divorced from him this time. She said, well, I don't really like Roy Little, but he's no killer. During the investigation, someone sends an anonymous note to the APD about a rumor. Mary had seen an attorney in Jacksonville, Florida, shortly after getting married. The attorney, however, had no record of any such appointment. The note also insinuates that Mary only married him in spite of her trucker boyfriend. Regardless of the cloud of suspicion suspended over Roy, police were at a loss. I could not find anything that Roy, that Mary was not happy with Roy, or that Roy was unhappy with Mary, nothing. While Roy seemed to be at the top of the suspect list in his wife's disappearance, Diane's fiance, Tommy Antle, on the other hand, was never really considered a suspect in her murder. There was no evidence. And of course, Adel thought Adel had to be a crazy nut that just ran into her. He said, nobody would kill her because she was so nice to everybody. He said, she was such a sweet person. She's not the kind that would have enemies. But he did say, you know, she was kind of, she could be mysterious at times. And would, she would go somewhere and she'd be missing for a while. She couldn't really give a good explanation for where she'd gone. And he felt she was just her moods and she was trying to deal with it planning to get married. Jardine vividly remembers talking to Tommy about the moment he learned about his fiance's murder. Because they just took him in and showed him the body. And not the body, but the, they showed him the pictures. And he said, you know, next thing I knew, they were waking me up. And, um, he passed out when he saw it. And he said, this is Diane. This is how we found her. And uh, so that's pretty, pretty grotesque if you just lay it on somebody like that and uh, but I guess they wanted to see if he if he could be stoic or what he would do and uh, so I don't think they you know I don't, I don't think there was much nothing really to point to him before or after East Point police never document a top suspect in their case file except for one man who claimed to have dated Diane but they write him off as delusional rather than homicidal 
30 years after Mary disappeared, her case would take a complete 180 to what anyone thought they knew before. Danny Egan, who led APD's homicide division, was front and center in 1994 when Mary's case broke wide open. Being on the force for quite some time, and as a member of the famous Homicide Hat Squad, he was already familiar with Mary's case. She was a legend in his department. Again, the holy grail of cold cases. This case is a case that there was a lot of history at APD. Back in the day when I came on the department, and I wasn't even from here, but very early on in my career, I became familiar with Mary Shotwell Little. That was that was a case that everybody knew about, and it was always the big mystery of what happened to her. Was she murdered? Where? Where's her body? Who did it? And one of these things that uh, sticks around to this day, and people are still asking the questions. Danny Egan sits inside his home office in Washington, Georgia. My name's Danny Egan. I'm a retired Atlanta police lieutenant. A good two hours from the grit of the city. I spent 29 years with APD, came on in 1974. And from his long career on the streets of Atlanta. And then retired in 2003 after a little over 29 years service. Turned 50 and that was the day to retire. Um, since then I worked as an in-house investigator for a plaintiff's law firm here in Atlanta. And um, now I'm retired, uh, uh, doing some consulting work and uh, sort of working on a book that I've been uh, plotting along with over the years. So that's, that's where I'm at right now. So I'm just a retired old guy uh, talking about things that went on years ago. The now retired homicide detective sits in front of bookshelves lined with rows and rows of true crime and whodunits. He still tinkers on cases, never giving up on the chase. And in 1994, while still on the force, that chase would lead him to coming Georgia and the possibility of once and for all locating Mary Shotwell Little. In 1994, um, January of 1994 specifically, I was the commander of the homicide unit um, in Atlanta. Our job was to investigate murders. Uh, part of being in homicide, part of the lore that had been passed down over the years, there's one case in particular that everybody knew about even though it had happened when a lot of us were still in grammar school, and that was Mary Shotwell Little, which occurred in the mid-60s. Uh, of course, Mary Little was uh, last seen at Lenox Mall, uh, believed to be abducted, never seen again. Her vehicle's discovered at the mall. Uh, there's some circumstances involving the use of one of her credit cards, uh, I think in North Carolina. But once she left the mall that night after having supper with a friend, she's never, she's never seen or heard from again. She fell off the face of the earth. So everybody knew about this case. This, this was a case that everybody that worked homicide, everybody on the police department probably knew about it. They, whether they were on the police department when it occurred or not. So in 94, I'm in charge of the homicide squad and one of the detectives, Carl Price, uh, very good detective, very thorough, uh, methodical, uh, knew his job. He becomes involved in an aspect of the Mary Shotwell Little investigation and more or less what happened was somebody in Forsyth County had went to the Sheriff's Department there in Forsyth County or it was either City of Cumming and said, I know who may be killed Mary Shotwell Little and I know where she might be buried. Well this got everybody's attention. The GBI was involved in it as well as the, the 
Forsyth County uh, Sheriff's investigators. So Carl Price became uh, uh, the point man in Atlanta and proceeded to investigate what these people had been told. And, and what it all came down to was a woman had came forward uh, telling her husband she knew about the murder of Mary Shotwell Little about 25 years before 1994. Uh, she had witnessed the murder of Mary Shotwell Little in Forsyth County, or a woman that she believed to be Mary Shotwell Little. Her story had enough detail and was credible enough to make everybody think this could possibly be true since we had no other information to work for. So Price, Detective Price, worked with the GBI and Forsyth County to develop this information, which ultimately led to procuring a search warrant for the place where she was alleged to be buried, uh, which was a piece of property in Forsyth County underneath uh, the floor of a garage. What the woman told the investigators back then was she had been present at this location on the night that Mary Little was murdered. And she said, I believe this woman was believed to be Mary Little based on what she had seen on the news afterwards. And she said she'd been carrying this information around with her all these years and it had been eating at her. And actually, she wasn't the one that came forward to the police. It was her husband who came forward and said, this is what my wife's telling me. And they followed up with uh, the wife and she said, this is what I saw. I was at this location on this evening when a woman showed up at the door and said, I'm having car trouble. And the people there at this location ran a garage there, I guess is a business out of the house. And the woman said, I'm having car trouble, my car's tore up. They fixed the car. And then she said that there was some kind of argument, possibly about the payment of the fee that they wanted for fixing the car. And one of the guys that lived there took a tire and hit her in the head and killed her. And then they put her in a hole in this garage where they had already excavated because they were getting ready to put a concrete floor in this garage. Put her in a hole and then within the next day or two, covered the hole over with concrete and that's where she was supposed to be buried, under this concrete floor in this garage. She took a polygraph and the polygraph says she's telling the truth. It was either one of her relatives, possibly her sister. She said she didn't know anything about it and they gave her a polygraph and there was deception shown saying you're not being truthful. There was enough information there to spur the detectives to move forward with getting the warrant as one of these deals like there's some discrepancies here but there's a lot of good information. Uh, the, the, the time frame was a little bit off but we're talking about a period of 25 years and uh, if I recall correctly this woman had uh, a history of, of uh, alcohol which could have clouded her exact recollection of the date when this happened. So the warrant secured. Uh, they um, go to this location. They've got some kind of device where you can monitor or, or examine the earth without disturbing it to see if there's some kind of uh, uh, impression in the ground which maybe would suggest a body. And that was there. Uh, everything added up. So Wait. There was there, there was there was the machine that that read the earth, uh, uh, talking about the consistency or the um, density of the earth, suggested that there could be something buried there. So everything was in place to say we've got enough probable cause to do to do a search warrant and then to search to dig this place up and and see. And the owner of the property was more or less cooperative. What the detectives did thoroughly documented and in the way they 
corroborated as much of the evidence or corroborated as much of the information as possible and then um, based on this information got the warrant to do the search. So this, this wasn't done haphazardly. And we had to bear in mind too that uh, information could have been completely false and we didn't want anybody to get caught up in an allegation or accusation of murder when they were innocent of the charge. But it's one of these deals where you've got this information and if you don't follow up on it, you're going to catch hell. Uh, people are going to question whether you did your job. And of course, if you do follow up on it, then you're going to wind up with egg on your face because you don't find anything. But it was done as thoroughly and uh, professionally as it could possibly be done. And it came up nothing. Uh, nothing was discovered to uh, substantiate the belief that she was murdered at this location. Detective Price asks for Mary's evidence on file, but he's told that it's been destroyed due to the length of time it has been in storage. On a side note, the detective also calls Roy to give him the update to his wife's case. Roy is surprised the case is still being investigated and asks if they find his wife, will that put an end to the case once and for all? He also asks that he not be contacted by the press because, quote, as he considered them to be a real pain in the ass, end quote. Actually, the owner of the property was the father of the guy that was alleged to have been the suspect. And um, by this time that it happened, the suspect was dead, uh, but the owner was supposed to have been present when the murder occurred. Anyhow, he, he was cooperative to the point of saying, you know, y'all can search. Of course, with a warrant, there was no consent really needed, but his concern was, you're going to tear my place up, you know, who's going to be responsible for the damage? And I don't know what ever uh, was worked out with that, but they, they went to this location, they dug up where the body was supposed to be based on what this woman told them, and they found nothing. And as far as I know, that's the last significant lead that ever came up in this case. This case, in retrospect, looking at some of the information that this woman brought forward, makes you wonder if too much information could have been given out to the press over the years to where the lady making the allegation could have known enough just based on what was in the press to tell a good enough story to make it sound plausible. How much of a concern is that in this case or kind of any case really? Every case, it's always a concern. I mean, there's a, a fine line there of how much information do you, do you let out and how much do you hold back. Clearly, you can't let out every bit of information uh, you've got to hold something back that nobody else is ever going to know about. But if you have too much information there, somebody can pick it up and they can take that information and twist it around a little bit and then wind up creating enough questions and doubt to send police off on a wild goose chase. Having looked at the, the case back then and, and you know knowing about the case for your whole career, do you have any thoughts or theories on what could have happened to her? And that's all it would be is thoughts and theories. Um, that's all anyone has. <clears throat> 
There's a lot of crazy stuff. Um, um, I've never read the entire file. Of course, I remember seeing the file years ago when we did this last investigation. It was a huge file. A lot of work had been put into it. Uh, and, and from what I understand was she had gotten off work that day at the bank and then went had uh, supper with a friend at Lenox and then was preparing to go home. And for some reason, she disappeared from that point. And then there's some issue here with her car maybe being moved and then brought back to the location, uh, which just creates all kinds of questions. Honest to God, I don't know what could have happened to her. Part of what I do know as a fact is her credit card being used in North Carolina. Uh, that sounds pretty credible. And then there's a, supposed to be a witness at one of these locations, or maybe both of these locations where her card was used that described a woman being in the, the car, and the woman had some blood on her, which makes me believe that probably she was kidnapped by somebody and then taken away and then murdered and, and disposed of. But whether it happened here in Atlanta or North Carolina, I don't know. Huge mystery. The mystery of it all is what happened to her. Was it in Atlanta? Did it, was she kidnapped from Atlanta, taken to North Carolina, murdered there, disposed of? And that's, that's what the mystery is. It's still a huge mystery. But if Roy Little didn't kill his wife, and she isn't buried in Forsyth County, where is Mary? Five Roses is produced, narrated, and reported by Jessica Knoll. Joe Flaccari co-produced Five Roses. Philip Kish is the digital director. Aaron Peterson is the executive producer. Brendan Keefe is our TV investigator. Joshua Coates created the graphic. And special thanks to Annie Campbell. Five Roses is produced for WXIA-TV, 11alive.com, and Tegna Media as part of our ongoing digital series, Gone Cold. We are on Twitter and Instagram as Gone Cold. And we have a Facebook page you can join and discuss the podcast and other cold cases. You can read more cold case stories and listen to our upcoming monthly podcast by visiting 11alive.com backslash gone cold. <laughs>